The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Disconnect that light bulb from your cat's control panel and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Rory Blythe. This is Jeff Maciolik here to announce show number 77 with guest Charles Petzl, recorded live Friday, August 20th. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter, and now offering hands-on VBNet and ASP.NET classes remotely. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And by Dundas Chart, advanced technology, advanced results. Online at www.dunduschart.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, Microsoft Technologies in-depth for IT managers and developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who's only 14,999 signatures away from getting Charles Petzold on the 2004 presidential ballot, Carl Franklin! Gotta get enough points. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I mean it. This is Carl. I think Charles could be our next president of the United States. What do you think? What do you think, Rory? Rory Blythe out there in Portland. What do you think? You're kind of putting me on the spot with that question. Um, I don't <laughs> believe that my political viewpoints are on trial here, Carl. <laughs> How you been, man? Oh, I've been good. Um, I I uh, just spent the week in Louisville, Kentucky, Louisville, Louisville. and uh, then in in Cincinnati, Ohio, which I guess is also part of Kentucky, which is part of Indiana. Right. As I've been learning, if you talk to the locals, it's just um, one big Midwest. And uh, yeah, and I've been hanging out with William Steele, who is another MSDM presenter. That's the team I'm on the MSDM presenters, and he is freaky, freaky smart. And not only is he freaky, freaky smart, but let me tell you something. I'm going to tell you, you want to hear something, Carl? Because I can tell yeah. you something. You want to hear something? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I'll tell you something. I'm willing to bet that my Thursday was better than not just your Thursday and not just Jeff's Thursday, but the Thursdays of your Thursdays plus the Thursdays of all the people in the chat room combined. That's how really? good my Thursday was. How good was your Thursday? What did you do? My Thursday was really good. Um, William Steele, this guy... Uh, that I just talked about. Not only is he like super smart programmer, presenter, talker guy and whatever, but he is also <laughs> a pilot. He's been a pilot for 16 years and Ooh. he took me up in his Cessna 150 last wow. night. And you know me and my fear of flying. Oh yeah. <laughs> we were in there. The thing was built in like 1950. This is actually his 13 year old daughter's plane. So obviously brilliance runs in the family, but right. we were in there together and uh, like we were, it was so cramped that our thighs were touching. 
you know, Ooh. and and we we and it was really with, ah. no, it wasn't that kind of thigh touching. It wasn't that kind of thigh touching. <laughs> he didn't like pull off down some dark alley somewhere and put the moves on me or anything like that. No, it was uh, it was just very cramped. But yeah, we went up there and man, it was windy and the thing was getting bounced around and going all over the place. But you know, as scary as it was, I would have I would have felt like a real jerk if I had said no to the opportunity. Right, so that right. was awesome. That just made my night. And so that was after that, yesterday. I gave yeah. Do you think that uh, got you over a little bit of your fear of flying? It did because getting on the on uh, the seven thirty seven and then the Airbus three nineteen this morning was no problem at all. I just got on and yeah. did my thing, and I thought, well, you know, I mean, it might be a little bit scary to me, but at least my thighs aren't touching the other person's thighs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if and, you can survive plus, a ride in a Cessna, you can survive anything, right? <laughs> yeah, and and plus, they, they there was no peanuts on the Cessna, and you begin <laughs> to realize how much you miss the peanuts and how vital they are, a component to the whole air traveling experience. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a good way to cap off what was kind of a tough Thursday because it was my first solo day as an MSDM presenter Oh yeah, and it wound up not being entirely solo because Bill had to jump in and help me out a bit, but there were good parts and there were some not so good parts. If you think back to my performance at the, uh, Hartford, Connecticut dev days, days, which most people have probably tried to forget if they did (laughs) see it, it it wasn't, it wasn't that bad, but, um, you know, there were, there were some rough spots, but I'm going to have a total iron out for Tuesday that you were going to make not only a great live presenter but the best live presenter anyone has ever seen once you loosen up a little man that's just gonna be great i can't wait well <laughs> the loosening up thing though i'm kind of i'm built this stiff there's no loosening up to be done i can oh, i can have happen. the full swedish massage with aromatherapy <laughs> and and uh you know they could probably inject me with a horse tranquilizer and i still wouldn't <laughs> loosen up i'd still be pretty stiff but i do appreciate the compliment carl franklin yeah. thank you very much so how was your week my week was good uh i've been Teaching third week in a row. I'm teaching every week this uh, month. Um, by the way, I just got today some uh, comments from uh, the class that I taught last week down at Carmax, and uh, man, they were they were pretty awesome. Uh, and nice. you know, I don't I don't usually get comments like this. And I hear I you know I'll just read a couple of them. Uh, I'd like to give a car buck to Jim Rosendale. For organizing the training, he did an outstanding job finding finding an excellent trainer and setting up a very good advanced.net training class. And that was the that was like the shortest one. Check this out. Uh, I just want to thank you for your role in getting this class. This guy was a top notch instructor, best we've had at Carmax yet, in my humble opinion. He really knew his stuff. I'm not talking about his presentation material, but .net and not just in general, but he knew it in depth and he was humorous. Uh, it was obvious that his knowledge was deep and wide when we saw him show us spur-of-the-moment stuff and code and debug on the fly and know where and how to fix problems and find answers. Geez, that's a really long sentence. Probably the longest sentence I've ever <laughs> read in my life. He did a great job, and you did a great job getting him here. Thanks. Uh, I could go on and on, but it sounds really uh, really lame to just talk about yourself We like could that. actually... Tr- we- we could translate that long sentence into German and probably quadruple its length. Yeah, probably. Um, but no, you know what, though? The, th- the thing is, though, I don't think it is lame for you to talk about that because, you know, you get occasionally you're going to get a negative review f- from somebody, too. And you almost have to, like, kind of really build up the good reviews, you know, for yourself yeah. because it, yeah. it drags you away from the, from, the, from the bad reviews. The bad reviews can point out where you might have gone wrong, but the good reviews, it feels good, you know? And yeah, also, usually I, I only mean, get it's your con- show and you should be pointing out Franklin's raw. You should be pointing out Franklin's net training and stuff like that. Yeah, it that's makes true. sense. That's true. Yeah. And thank you for that. Totally okay. Thank you. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I generally get uh, constructive criticism, and every once in a while if I fish, you know, if I say, you know, what what have you been to uh, training before and how does this compare, usually I get really good uh, result. you know, really good comments. But 
these just came out of the blue and they landed in my inbox today and it sort of made my day. So, uh, nice. yeah, this, the class this week was great. Um, what wasn't so great is that Gretchen's grandmother died last week and she was 86 oh, no. and she had been battling some stuff and, and everybody sort of saw it coming. But, uh, uh, the funeral was this week. It was yesterday. And so I had a class, right? So I had to do some shuffling and rescheduling. We actually ended up doing uh, half of Thursday's session on Wednesday night. And then I took the class out mm-hmm. for a beer at the Dutch Tavern. That was fun. I uh, gave him tickets to the Mystic Aquarium and to the film oh, festival okay. that's going on at the Guard Theater. So they were well taken care of. And then we, uh, then we got back to it on Thursday afternoon. So you know, they actually got to go out and see the area on Thursday day. So it worked out really well for them. Anyway, that's been my that's week. That's good they were understanding. Yeah, I bought a bass. I bought a bass guitar and a nice. great big 1,000-watt bass amp, which was very cool. I needed a bass to f- sort of fill out my studio. I have just about every other Well, you need another pair of arms is actually really what you need. I wish to, I could but... play them all at the same time. That would be, the, that would be yeah. ideal, but uh, unfortunately, you need people to do that. So. Right. <laughs> Those unreliable things, then. Yeah. yeah. Carbon-based units. Yeah. So we got some mail this week, and uh, I'd like to read it. Uh, this first one came from Alan Stevens. Hi, Carl, Rory, Jeff, and Richard. Greetings from Knoxville, Tennessee. I love the show. I have at least one programming Satori, uh, Satori moment each show, which is an instant awakening. Keep up the great work spreading .NET enlightenment. I would love to hear y'all interview, and I swear he wrote Y apostrophe A-L-L. I would love to hear y'all interview Joel Spolsky and Rick Strahl. And you oh, know wow. you know uh, Joel, right? Um, uh, We've emailed back and forth a few times. I wouldn't say that I know him, but I guess we're sort of acquainted through the email. Yeah. And Joel, if you're listening to this, this is a good idea. Uh, he says, Joel is the author of joelonsoftware.com. He has some interesting and strong opinions on .NET and software development in general. We've actually... Uh, read some of his uh, comments or talked about them. Rick Strahl is a partner of previous guests, Kevin McNish and Marcus Egger. Uh, Rick is an, is a Microsoft MVP with a blog at westwind.com slash weblog, where he shares his struggles and successes in developing with .NET. His site is part of my daily tour de blog. I know you have some great guests lined up for the near future. So just add these to the suggestion bin. Thanks. We will, Alan. Thank you very much. And uh, for swag, we have some new swag, folks. Uh, if you haven't seen the store lately, go to www.cafepress.com slash .NET Rocks. And we actually have now a .NET Rocks lunchbox. Very cool. So uh, we're going to send that one of those to Alan. This next one comes from Guy Provost, who's a, a regular listener of the show and a frequenter of the uh, chat room during the live show. He says, man, can't believe you pulled that one. I mean, this is the guy on Windows development, Charles Petzold. (laughs) Seriously, when I started dev on Windows, those were in Windows 2.x and 3.0 days, you just had to buy the Bible or buy the Petzold, like we said to someone asking on how to program the damn thing. Those were the pre-oop days. I really like to know his point of view on .NET and C-sharp VBNet. Well, I'm sure you're going to get it tonight. I always thought that, like Einstein, Petzold didn't believe in something really big and real, for Einstein, it was that quantum physics fad, bah, God don't play dice stuff. <laughs> For Petzold, it was, it seems, the oop paradigm fad, bah, those classes are just fancy struct I could address with fancy programming and pointer relocations. 
Am I wrong? Did he see the light? Man, can't wait for tonight's show. This is a geek fest tonight. I already have some nice microbrewery beer waiting in the fridge for the show. Call your show is just great. Here in Quebec, Canada, I'm telling uh, telling about you guys doing a heel of a job. A heel. I think he made a hell of a job. To all the developers I lead, I'm getting your new auditors each week's. Please keep up the good work. Let's rock, Guy. Yes, Guy, we will. Thanks. Cool. Yeah. Uh, Anton says, hey, Carl and Rory, I thought I'd send you this photo. No wonder people are buying DVD rewinders. And I put a link to the photo at shrinkster.com slash CN. CN as in Nancy. This photo shows the inside of a DVD case from a DVD rental store in my town. The sticker on the inside reads, Be Kind, Rewind. (laughs) (laughs) He says, Yes, I know. The sticker is probably their security device, and they probably have a huge roll left over from the VHS days. Still pretty funny, though. Anyway, hope you enjoyed that, and I would just like to say that I enjoy your show tremendously. I've been following your show from the very first one, and it has gone uh, just from strength to strength. Congratulations. I'm really looking forward to the Charles Petzold show. Keep up the good work in .NET Rocks and .NET 2.0 even more so. Thanks, Anton. Anton, you are now the proud owner of a .NET Rocks lunchbox. And uh, <laughs> that would be the mail. Now it's time for the news. Now obey. Sorry, what's going on in the uh, blog sphere in the in .NET land this week? Well, uh, the first news item that I've got tonight this is the biggest news item that I've encountered all week, and I wouldn't ordinarily put a news item about .NET Rocks on .NET Rocks, but Charles Petzold is going to be on .NET Rocks tonight, so that is the number one bit of news that I wanted to get out. Charles Petzold is on yes. tonight. Big the news. number two. The number two news item of the week is that my Thursday was better than your Thursday. The number three uh, .NET news item of the week is uh, I wanted to get a shout out for the uh, .NET Book Club. Um, got a little email about this, and I've heard about it before. It's uh, it looks like it's something between uh, Jason Alexander or John Alexander and uh, Jeff Julian, and. Uh, you know, the whole idea is you get together, you, you read some books together, you talk about yeah. the books together, and you get discounts on the books. So right. it's actually pretty cool. So the URL to that is www.netbookclub.org. Awesome. It's www.netbookclub.org. That was kind of hard to say the first time, so I had to repeat myself there. I hope yeah, I didn't drive yeah. anybody too nuts. That's a, that's a great Item. site. I've, uh, I've been up there and looked around, and, and I've actually found some great stuff uh, on, the okay, books, cool. on the books that I already like. So, Well, nice. So, uh, news item number four, and this is really messed up, all right? And uh, the link to the article is shrinkster.com slash CO, um, and it's about the fact that if you happen to be in the, the uh, Olympics this year, you cannot blog. If you are really? in the Olympics, if you're a coach or if you're this or you're that, you cannot blog about the Olympics because it's seen as you competing with the media contracts, that have gone out for the Olympics. No I mean, kidding. if you wonder why the Olympics totally sucks this year uh, and why nobody's going, it might have something to do with the fact that there's weird garbage like this going on. Wow. I mean, what better coverage could there be than somebody talking about uh, the various things that are happening to them while they're going through? It's probably what's one of the most stressful and uh, incredible 
activities of their lives. Instead, we're going to get, really? you know, the watered down big media version. And that's cool. I like the big, you know, glammy, glitzy stuff. But with blogs, we finally have the opportunity to, to get inside and see what's going on inside of these people's heads at a very personal level. And we can't do it because somehow they're competing. How the single mind of one person can be competing with really? NBC or CBS or whatever that's is way beyond me. But do so they, that sucks. Do they, Again, the do link they also to, oh, say that you can't uh, email? Because I know that a lot of people have been emailing their favorite... Uh, uh, Olympians, and uh, no, I, I I don't know. Um, that's actually not a bad question because if you email your favorite Olympian and they send back some sort of a personal anecdote, then are you allowed to blog it? I don't know. I don't know. That's that's an interesting point. Well, yeah, anyway. So the link one one more time is shrinkster dot com slash c o, and that is the letter o, not a zero. Uh, the next item on the list at uh, shrinkster dot com slash c p. That's as in Charles Petzold is that Hotmail <laughs> is is going to upgrade and leapfrog the Gmail storage space of one gig and it's going to start giving two gig out to, to people who have their email accounts. Yeah, so we're we're into the we're into what I think is one of the more ridiculous uh, online wars that we've seen in a long time because I can't imagine that I'm ever going to wind up consuming more than a few megs with any of these services, but yeah. at the same time. You know, I'm I'm like any other dog with a bone who looks into the reflection and sees a bigger bone and tries to reach for it. And <laughs> or I guess that particular analogy didn't work right there. But <laughs> you know, dog with little bones sees a bigger bone. What's the bigger bone? Even if you're not going to chew it or eat the whole thing, to be like yeah. my dog walking off with a brontosaurus bone or something like that. I, I saw you know, this before. Bigger, bigger than my dog. I but. saw this before when you were talking on the Richard Campbell show, which we uh, is part of the Dot and Rocks movie this year. Um. You know, when when you brought that up the first time, the Hotmail going to one gig, I made the comment then, I'll make it now. It's it's like the Cold War, you know? It's like people aren't, they don't have the space. People aren't going to use it. It's just a marketing yeah. gimmick, you know? Yeah. Who's going to use two and gigs of email And I'm an idiot and I'm going to go for it. No, I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah, but I want it. I want the one with two gigs of email <laughs> space. That's why this stuff is effective. It doesn't matter. It's kind of like getting a, it's kind of like getting a dual Pentium That's three it. point, whatever, hyper threaded extreme edition, you know, whatever. You're not going to use all that power, but so, so God, it sure makes it. you feel beefy and yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yep. Okay. So the next news item, and this is at shrinkster.com slash CQ. Um, and this is an article about, is an article on Wired about hackers talking about blocking the uh, Republicans website. And I'll tell you, all right, I think it's probably pretty obvious to anybody who listens to me talk that I'm a liberal, all right? I'm pretty left-wing and and uh, I, th- that's, where, that's where my views are and that's probably how I'll be voting and everything. But at the same time, I think it's really sleazy that hackers would go in and try to silence the opposition. I mean, you wind up without any perspective at all and you're going to wind up with a totally skewed report. I, I just don't like the idea of trying to shut down the communications channel on the other side. I think it's really sick. So I thought that was a pretty messed up story. I don't yeah. care if I don't agree with them. They should they should still have their say, right? Right. People should have their people should have all the information available to them and be able to make a choice that's based cool. on that. So nobody nobody likes that. Yeah, that's that. really lame. And finally, the last bit of news, and this is at shrinkster.com slash CR. Um, there is an article up debating whether Mac or Linux is in the lead. And I just want to say it doesn't really matter because you're both losers. So that's it. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> now obey. Okay. Well, you know, this is a seriously momentous occasion. Uh, 
not even as much for me as it is for the millions of uh, developers out there who cut their teeth on Petzold's books uh, going as far back as 19, the 1980s. Um, Charles Petzold is a freelance writer who's been writing about PC programming since 1984. PC programming since 84. Did they have PCs in 1984? I don't even remember. He wrote technical columns for PC Magazine between 1985 and 1995. He wrote the first article, the first article about Windows programming for Microsoft Systems Journal, which Hmm. is now MSDN Magazine, and is best known for his book, uh, Programming Windows from Microsoft Press, which was first published in 1988 and is currently in its fifth fifth edition more recently charles has written three books about net programming including a book for beginners entitled programming in the key of c sharp he is also the author of a unique book about the inner workings of computers entitled code this hidden language of computer hardware and software his website is www.charlespetzel.com will you please welcome it is an honor and a privilege to have the esteemed the one and only Charles Petzold on .NET Rocks. How are you, Charles? I'm good, Carl. How are you? Thank you very much for gracing our show with your presence. Carl, we're not worthy. Can, can, Carl, can I also ask Charles Petzold how he's doing? Yes, you may. Okay. Hi, Charles Petzold. How are you? Okay. How are you doing? I'm this good. Is, I just r- wanted to get that out of the way. Rory's having a religious good. experience right now. So, And... uh I meant what I said before that, you know, I, I didn't do so much C programming and I got into Windows programming through Visual Basic. But even in the beginning when I was learning VB1 and trying to do, you know, 256 color bitmaps in VB1, mm-hmm. I was reading your book. And C or not, I mean, you taught the world how to program Windows. And I learned a lot from it. I had your book right. and I had an API reference. And reading C and applying it to VB1 was a real trip. <laughs> <laughs> so it was interesting hearing, hearing the, uh, one of the letters that you read, wondering uh, what my attitude was toward object-oriented programming. Yeah, that was an interesting one. Yeah, it just shows you how, how well my publisher has, has publicized my 3.net books, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, there's... <laughs> Well, let's not talk about that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I love object-oriented programming. Um, yeah. My most recent book is uh, Programming in the Key of C-Sharp, and it's for beginning programmers, people who've never programmed before. That's and awesome. um, I think I introduced them, introduced the beginning programmer to object-oriented programming better than anyone else ever. I believe it. I was reading code. I have code. I was sent your this book, Code, um, the Hidden Language of Computer Hardware and Software, when it came out from Microsoft Press, it just landed in my on my doorstep. And I thought, wow, this is interesting. It's Charles Petzold, but, you know, it's sort of got a little history. It's got a little science lesson. It's kind of like, you know, takes me back to high school, uh, you know, physics and, and electronics and, and even goes into chemistry and other things. But I got to tell you something, Charles. This book, Code is filled with smut. <laughs> you wouldn't believe it, Rory, but sex and violence on every page 
It's unbelievable. <laughs> and I'm just going to have, of course, read, you know, <laughs> code. Yeah. And I don't recall that much sex. No, and no, violence, no. But... You're, you've got him all wrong. This is a smut master. Let me just quote this one paragraph. <laughs> all right, all right. Okay. I'll just put right, one okay. paragraph. No in one no single idea. paragraph, we've got sex, positions, and punching. Sex, positions. Listen to this. You're talking about the 1880 census in which this guy built a machine, Hollerith, and I quote, for example, a census card used in a purely binary system would have one position for sex. It would be either punched for male or unpunched for female or the other way around. Now, that's just intolerable. If President Bush had a burn the book list, this would be on it. And you call yourself a, a scientist. You charlatan. Get off my show. <laughs> um, what I was going to say was that as I was reading code, you always, when you explain something, you always address the issue of somebody who's looking at the, what you just said and saying, that doesn't make sense. Because a lot of these abstract things don't make sense, like on the surface. Right. But you immediately... Like, after you explain it, the next sentence is, and this might not be obvious because it looks like this, but mm -hmm. really, it's that. Mm -hmm. And I really, really, really appreciate that. If I had had this book in high school and college, I think I would have learned a lot more about so computer you, you studied, science. So you studied digital design in high school and college. I didn't just study digital design, but I'm just talking about the science like yeah. behind electricity and the stuff that you talk about in the beginning and, and all throughout the book, actually. Good stuff. So I, yeah. So uh, I think this should be required reading for anybody in a comp sci class. You know, I, um, I, I think it is used in a couple courses. Um, I was hoping, I was hoping that this book would would sell millions of copies. That it would be, you know, the basic book for people who were curious about what what the word digital meant. Yeah. and how information is digitized and, and all that. And um, I don't think I succeeded in writing the book I wanted to. I think if, it, if the book were like 250 pages, and yeah. um, I think it would be a lot better. I think it goes on too long. Oh, I, don't I, don't I, I don't know. I don't know. I plan on reading. I, you know, I read a little piece here and a little piece there, but I plan on reading the whole thing cover to cover um, just you know, when I have the time. It is yeah. a big book. Yeah. I... I, I, I generally try to write books to be read from beginning to end. So it, it's good to hear that you, you want to do that. Oh, I do. <laughs> My introduction to you, Charles, was through code. Before that, um, I mean, I was mainly, I was doing like VB stuff and Java stuff and, and all that. So I, I wasn't even familiar with your Windows book. Um, mm -hmm. And my whole Charles, my Charles Petzold experience happened through code. And I found the book accidentally um, I was in Borders, and I was just looking in the general computer section, and there was this book that just stood out. It was, you know, obviously code. It had that totally white binding and just had the word code written on the side. And then I looked at the bottom, and I saw that it was Microsoft Press. And it didn't look like any Microsoft Press book that I had ever seen before in my entire life. So I picked it up off the shelf, and I started reading a few pages. And within maybe 10 minutes, I mean, I had definitely made my decision to purchase it. And I took it home, and I started tearing through it. And I felt like in a lot of ways, you were for computer science what Carl Sagan kind of was for like astronomy and Absolutely. theoretical oh, physics that's, that's and, very, and a bit of history as well. Kind. Thank you. Okay. No, that's, that's exactly what I liked though. I, I was reading it and I could not believe 
how incredibly clear the concepts were one after the other. And yeah. my question is, what, what were the circumstances surrounding not only the writing of this book, but the publishing of this book? I mean, how did you get <laughs> Microsoft, did Microsoft Press? Press come to publish it? Microsoft yeah, how did this Press happen? came to publish this book because of a, a standard clause in a standard book contract that is the right of first refusal. And because Microsoft Press had published Programming Windows, um, we were legally, we meaning my agent and I, were legally uh, bound to show them this book and let them decide whether mm. they wanted it or not. Huh. And um, mm. we did not think it was the right book for Microsoft Press, mm. but they liked the book and they said all the right things. They said, we think this should be mm. published in hardcover first, which I always thought it should be. Um, but they said it. So we couldn't really say, no, we want to bring this to another publisher. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know how that would have worked. I think another publisher um, may have been a little more brutal with the editing and maybe improved it somewhat. I tend to be, I tend to be a little wordy <laughs> when I'm writing. And I, I, so, I like it. I mean, I, I love your style. I, because I, you can sort of lose yourself in it, you know. I, I do, and Good. you know the thing is, is that it's not dry. It's definitely not dry stuff. I mean, you've got some great stuff in there. Although, there, there does seem to be a lot of stuff about uh, cats <laughs> <laughs> and creating yeah. cat battery control panel switch computers and stuff, yeah. hmm. which which I thought was humorous. <laughs> It's so very do, do you ever get yeah. do you ever get letters from people who uh, say, "Hey, look, I went out and I bought code and I read through it and I actually went out and started building some of the circuits that you described uh, there, in, there, in the chapters." I, I got I got an e I got an email from like a high school student who wanted to um, you know build a whole computer using relays, mm -hmm. um, hmm. which and I discouraged him because if you start to try to figure it out, I mean, it's just the cost is just astronomical. Um, but I suggested that he he try building a a, um, a one bit adder, which um, is a more reasonable project. Um, right. And Jeff Procise, Jeff Procise's daughter, um, did a a adder not out of relays but of ICs for a science fair project using my book. So that wow. was kind of cool. That is cool. Hmm, cool. You know, you know the other the other cool thing about code is that. You know, when I was growing up with computers, I started out with a Timex Sinclair, and, and my next computer was an IBM PC, the original 8086, little mm -hmm. 4.77 megahertz chip in there and everything. And computers were relatively simple back then. But now you pop your PC open, and it's sort of like looking under the hood of a Mazda Miata or something. There's like yeah, hoses yeah. everywhere, and things are glowing, and, and it's hard to know what's going on. And code kind of gets us back to the basics and says, yeah, sure, even though um, the, the, the chips are a lot larger now not not obviously in manufacturing size but in in complexity even though they're much right. larger in scope and everything these are the principles that are driving these chips at, at their lower levels and i loved that because absolutely it, it's such an it's such an intimidating uh subject matter and you just took it and and gave it to us in a way that is totally digestible starting out with right. like here's how to turn on a light you know yeah, yeah the I flashlight that was fantastic thing. Yeah, absolutely, and, that, wanted, and that's I what I was, was talking fantastic. about too. Is that uh, uh, you know that you're t you're talking about some very very complex things in here, and like I said, spanning everything from logic and gates and uh, relays, 
uh, electronics and memory and how it all works. But but it's totally re- it's like exciting to read, you know? No, really. So here here's a question for you, Charles. Um, Have actually, we sucked two up questions. enough. <laughs> well, no, this isn't sucking up. This is this is where I have to just. I've been wanting to say these things to you since I first read code. So, the the, the first comment is uh, is well, actually, the first question is: Let's say that I didn't want to build these circuits with hardware. Is there a way for people who have picked up code to go out and build these circuits with some sort of an emulator? Um, AutoCAD, right? I think there are. Um, you know, the weirdest thing I got, and I. I you know, you just reminded me of this thing, and I, I had for, forgotten about it. Somebody sent me a PDF file in which he had implemented an 8-bit binary adder. Um, I don't even know how you do this in a PDF file. I guess it, I guess it was all I guess it was all in uh, PostScript, right? Hmm. I don't know. Can you write your own PostScript for in a PDF file? I guess so. <laughs> I guess but the, the, the whole thing, it was a it, it was a graphical thing. And you clicked on parts of it to throw little switches, and you could see all the gates light up and and, wow. and all. It was very cool. Um, I wonder why I didn't put that on my website. Anyway, um, I'll, I'll try to see if I can hunt that down and put it on. That, that was the strangest thing I saw. <laughs> Charles, um, that'd be cool. Somebody in the chat room wants to know if you would autograph his copy of code if uh, if uh, he sends it to either me or to you. Yeah, sure. Okay. I'll yeah, the, the 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 process is ha, all right. Here's here's what to do. Uh, first, send me an email, right? So I can give him my address, and all he has to do is like send it to me with with like a envelope inside with return postage. And that's anything at charlespetzold.com, right? Charles. Yeah, right, Petzold. right. Yeah, for the email. Yeah. All right, cool. Rory's bursting at the seams to ask another question. Go ahead. Man. <laughs> yeah, I, I had uh, there was sort of a part two to the question, even though they weren't really related. I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you a whole bunch of questions at once, and then just sit back and let you answer them. Um, but then it occurred to me that that might be a little bit strange and inefficient. So here's the second question: um, Now that you've given us code, do you have any plans at all to come back and give us another book that's going to take us uh, through another similar uh, knowledge domain in such a fascinating and, and well-written way? Or, or do you think code was where you wanted to focus all that kind of energy of yours at the time? Yeah, I, I, have, been, I have been tossing around a few ideas and um, uh, more centered on kind of like the very early history of, of computers and even what's called the prehistory, oh. which gets into the 19th century. Um, for a little while... I was I was kind of curious about um, the uh, digital. Uh, let me see if I can the differential analyzer, which is an analog computer, right? A lot of people don't know mm-hmm. there were analog computers before there were digital computers. Um, but the, the are, are you talking one, about the difference engine? The... No, no. This the differential. Let me get the let me get the phrase this the things right. Um, Charles Babbage's difference engine was called the differential oh, okay. analyzer. Oh. Now, the, the analog computer was the... <laughs> oh, you've gotten me flustered now. I don't know what it is. This is the stuff we were talking <laughs> about at dinner. Yeah, uh, we at yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Hold on. I, let me, hold on a second. I think it was the differential analyzer because Babbage had the inference engine, right? Uh, so many confusing code names, you know? Yeah. Differential integral analyzer. <laughs> it was an analog computer, though. 
Yes, and what it, it, what it what it it did was solve differential equations. Hmm. And now, what year was this? This was 1925. Wow. This was uh, Vannevar Bush, not related to. So this guy was well. This, was this like, guy was really smart. This is like the era of clock making and precise <laughs> manufacturing, right? Yeah, Vannevar Bush. I mean, Vannevar Bush later went on to. Um, he was in charge of coordinating all the science activities during World War II, including the Manhattan Project. And then he went on to. He, he wrote in the fifties. He wrote a famous article that seemed to presage uh, um, hot links and things, a linked mm. information. Um, but in 1925, he was a professor of engineering at MIT, and they needed to solve a bunch of differential equations and decided to build a machine to do it. Now, if you were to – differential equations are, involve um, derivatives and, and integrals and calculus stuff. Now, if you do differential equations on a digital computer, if you want to do differential equations on your computer, you know how you do them? You buy Mathematica. Yeah, right. For you thousands of dollars. <laughs> Math software. <laughs> because because it's it's and you, you use analytical methods to solve these these differential equations. But he constructed hardware to do integrations and then hook them together and solve differential equations. Um, there is actually a short film clip of this. Machine and work in, in operation in the movie When Worlds Collide, hmm. which is about they see some kind of comet heading towards Earth, and they have to figure out if it's going to hit the Earth. So they hmm. put it into the differential analyzer. And, and they actually used it in the movie. And they show, yeah, they show a small clip of it. <laughs> and it's the, it's, it's the most insane computer you've ever seen because it's, it's all on a tabletop, <laughs> and it's all these, these disks and stuff that are, that are rotating and making a big racket. And the output is, because it's an analog computer, the output is a graph. It draws hmm. a graph on a, on a paper. Hmm. Cool. So, How does it work? <laughs> <laughs> That's the question. <laughs> well, well, like, what is it made out of? Is it... It, it, is made, it is made out of, of, of wheels and, and axles and stuff. Wow. Um, the, huh. if, you, if you have a, a wheel like, um, like a turntable, that's that's spinning around and another wheel that sits on top of that upright the upright wheel will depending upon how far from the center of the horizontal wheel that upright wheel will revolve in a different at a different rate and so if you move uh, this is like you see this is why i didn't do the book <laughs> I'd have pictures there. <laughs> this is stuff. why they never built them, right? It's, <laughs> yeah. It's insane. But the, the, the thing is that, that I, was, I, was, I was thinking how I'd do this book in like one – I would have to like – I would have to like teach differential equations to the reader first before they actually, actually show how this machine works. Well, you're the man to do it. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really – it's mathematically, it's much more complex than any digital thing ever. Hey, uh, you know, Jeff yeah. Maciolik, just who's our uh, sound guy, who's really probably chomping at the bit to actually jump in here, I bet. Uh, he just sent me a link to this website that we're going to shrink, uh, uh, shrinkster.com slash CV, which is Tom Robinson's differential analyzer. And he oh, made cool. it out of 
Out of what? Out of Meccano? Yeah, they, they, yeah, people do that. Which is like, is it like Lego or something? It's, it's like an erector set. It's like the British, the, the European erector set. Yeah. Okay. So it says on the page, the author's current defer, uh, differential analyzer model. This machine has four integrators each, and I have no idea what I'm talking about here, but I'm reading. This machine has four integrators, each equipped with a two-stage torque amplifier, a dual output table, and an input table. The modular construction makes it easy to extend or remove sections for maintenance. Each lead screw on the I.O. tables or the integrators has a digital rotation counter attached, making initial setting of the machine simple and accurate. Yeah, but it takes up this guy's entire living room, though. (laughs) (laughs) Simple and accurate. Okay. (laughs) You're a nerd. (laughs) But the thing is, all all these analog computers were special purpose. it's, It's considered a special purpose computer if all you can do is solve differential equations. But for a physicist or an engineer, solving differential equations is like really important, you know. So it, it was it was a, an important machine. It was later used. They used uh, the analog computers, you know, to do bomb trajectories and stuff like that during World War II. Yeah, all that ugly stuff. The reason why we have computers in the first place. You know, you know, I don't, I don't really, I don't really know about that because most of the digital, the first digital computers were really done in the 30s, and they yeah. they weren't really connected with. The, the war at that point, you know? Um, so you think it was, if it wasn't the war, it had been something else like space or whatever that would have fueled them? Eventually, the PC had to evolve, and, you know, the PC yeah. wasn't spurred on by, certainly by war. It was, uh, it was consumer need. It was, you know, saving money. It was all about business, so. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when Rory asked you that question about if you want to do, like, a sequel, uh, I sort of like the last chapter of code where you sort of give like one paragraph or two, three mm-hmm. paragraph descriptions of all these digital technologies that you're interested in and that you yeah. like, uh, including MIDI and including HTML and uh, some other things. So I didn't know that you were into electronic music, which, you know, I learned a lot about computer science by programming MIDI at a kind of a low level too. Yeah, well, I, I got into um, electronic music um before, way before MIDI, I was <laughs> yeah. actually I, I can actually Voltage trace and stuff like that. I can I can trace my interest in computers to the release of Switched On Bach in 1968. Wow! wow. Um, and I was uh, 15 years old. Charles, I yeah. was I was one. <laughs> <laughs> I was a naughty feeling in my father's loins at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, and and because of this album, well, I got interested in classical music first of all. Yeah. And I still am. And um, but I got interested in electronic music. And um, when I was in college, when I turned twenty-one, I came into a, a, a little bit of money, about three thousand um, dollars. And I went out and bought a small synthesizer and a that TAC four-channel tape deck that could do the um, synchronized recording. You know. Wow, that must have been pretty expensive at that time. The, the synthesizer was 1500 The tape deck was 1200 This would have been 1974. That's a lot of money. Wow. Yeah, it was a lot of money, but, you know, I was, I was like, really, I really wanted to do my own switch-down box. <laughs> so <laughs> I did that for a while. And then a few years later, um, I had a, an electronic piano a, a, uh, uh, made by Univox, I think. 
and it, it was only like $500. But after banging on this piano for a while, um, all the little keys were like little, you know, con just contact switches. They had, each key had a little spring on it. And the contacts started eroding. So that, you know, you press a key and it wouldn't work anymore. You know, and you'd go inside yeah. with a little file and file it off. And it would work for a while and then it would stop working. And uh, I thought, you know, what I really need is a sequencer. <laughs> I, I wonder if there's a way. This must have been way before sequencers. Well, it was not way before sequencers. This was, this was approaching the, the late 70s. So they were using voltage control to do MIDI-style stuff back then, right? Yeah, the synthesizer was all, it was all, it was all voltage control. Yeah. The, um, the, this electronic piano I had, um, yeah, each key had a little separate circuit, um, which just independently turned off and on when you press the switch. But what I, what I conceived, I conceived of putting together a big array of little slide switches. Um, hmm. Horizontally, they would span the, the, the five octaves of the keyboard. Vertically, there would be 16 of them. Okay? Hmm. So an array of 16 by 61 little slide switches. And I found a place where I could buy slide switches in bulk for, for 10 cents a piece. And I, I don't know how much money that would be. 61 yeah. times 16 times yeah. 10 cents. So Math, but, math isn't your strong suit. I know. It's okay. <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> so I, I was, I, I didn't know how to like, I needed to, I, I thought, you know, I could, I could like program up a sequence by just throwing these switches. It would go through the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 16, and go, you know, loop around go through this 16-note mm -hmm. sequence, and every time there would be a switch on for each of the notes, you know, and that's how the, the sequence, sequence would work. I'd have this big array of switches. But I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how to, like, sweep through these 16 rows um, electronically. And um, I started researching this, and this, you know, this was hard research because we didn't have the Internet at that time, you know. Um, you had to actually go to bookstores and, and go through all the books. <laughs> but I found a book by Don Lancaster called The CMOS Cookbook, hmm. which right. was how to use CMOS chips to do exactly what I needed to do. Um, hmm. And so that's, that began me learning about chips Wow! and building so, these. So if it wasn't for music, you wouldn't have been inspired to be the, the Charles Petzl we know and love. This that's is pretty absolutely cool. true. Absolutely true. That's awesome. And, you know, being a musician, that's near and dear to my heart. I also yeah. read in that same last chapter, which I didn't know, that Sony and Philips invented the compact disc to be to hold 74 minutes of music uh, because Beethoven's symphony was that long. And it yeah, had the, to fit on the Ninth <laughs> Symphony had to fit you know, on one that, disc. <laughs> this may be an apocryphal story, but, yeah, it was some executive... Originally, they came out with the they came they came up with a CD spec of sixty minutes, and um, which seems you know yeah. a nice round number. Sure. And and a, a, an executive at Sony said, "No, we must fit von Karajan's performance of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony on one CD." <laughs> wow, huh. that's great. <laughs> it, it could that story could be total <laughs> bullshit. I do not know. Well, if you think about it, I mean, you know, I mean, right at the finale, you'd be like switching discs. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. that would suck. Yeah. <laughs> where's the you know where's the grandeur in that? <laughs> um. So we have a couple of questions about the f the quantum computer. Uh, uh, Abdella, uh, El Amiri 
wants to know, and from he's from Plattsburgh, uh, New York, he wants to know about the future, what you think the future of quantum computing will be, and maybe we could define it first. <laughs> Guy Provost wants to, know, wants to know about the quantum computer with qubits instead of bits. A great yeah, article I, on Computer Power User Magazine, CPU Mag, current issue. I'm not the person to ask about this stuff. Okay. I, I'm afraid not. I have like... I, I do have about half a dozen books on quantum computing at home, though. I mean, <laughs> I could, yeah. And maybe if I read those books, so I'll, I'll really know about it. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Right. Now, uh, you also have, you know, a lot of your Windows API programming books have really been great in the GDI mm-hmm. area. And in fact, I wouldn't know anything about bitmaps and palettes and. I love all those API calls, you know, back in the GDI. Yeah. Realize palette. That was one of my favorite ones. Yeah. Do you, how do you realize? I realize my palette, you know? And uh, I never knew what that did exactly. But it was know really either. necessary. It was. It, you know, it, it. I guess it applied the palette. Yeah. But, but, you know, I learned about all that GDI stuff. So, so I guess it sort of leads us into .NET. You know, what do you think? Uh, and, and, you know, I told the Charles Petzold story on the show a long time ago when Mark Dunn was the uh, co-host. And uh, I think I shared this with you as well, but I'll share it again, which was I was at a .NET summit uh, at Microsoft in Redmond just when .NET was coming out. Mm-hmm. I think it was the Authors Summit in like November 99 or yeah, 2000. Yeah, I, I went to that, yeah. Yeah, and, and it was basically they were doing a two-day slideshow, topical-based, with a very s- sparse demos, mostly slides, overview of .NET. And you had obviously seen the spec, and in, in the, there was a guy who was doing the graphic <laughs> stuff. <laughs> there was a guy who was doing the graphic stuff. And, you know, like most of the guys they have working at Microsoft doing those things are young, very young. And, uh, you know, this was a young kid, and, you know, he said, any questions? And you raised your hand, and he said, yeah. He didn't recognize you. And you said, yeah, I got a couple of questions. Uh, like, there's, it seems to me there's a lot missing from the, from the GDI Plus spec. Like, scroll DC is missing. I mean, you, can, you can't not use that. I mean, you have to use that sometimes. And what do you plan to do about that? And the guy was inhaling and getting ready to give one of his, uh, we're Microsoft, we can do whatever we want, and, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm just going to dance around this. And he came down, he walked down and gotten a little closer and squinted and looked at you and he pointed and he stopped and he said, you're Charles Petzold, right? And you go, yeah. So uh, you're going to answer my question or what? And he turned into this quivering ball of nerves, just shrunk right down to the floor, just face turned red. He just... <laughs> so what do you think uh, now, three years after and one framework later about uh, the graphical stuff? Oh, I... I I I loved it. I love it. I still love it. Yeah. Um my when I did when I did my my C sharp book on Windows Forms programming and the VB book which I adapted from it. Um about half the book is is devoted to graphics. Um and I took some I took some I I still get some criticism about this on Amazon the Amazon.com reviews of my books. Huh. At one one person said that that you know I I was like mired back in the API ages where everybody was drawing things. He said, this isn't real programming. Real oh, programming God. is forms. Oh, man. And I was like, oh, well, 
<laughs> Amazon.com does themselves a disservice by allowing anyone to post anything. Really is. I get some terrible ones myself. But anyway. no. but yeah, uh, I pr- I particularly liked a lot of the the bitmap stuff. I thought was done very well. It was you know for the first time it was so convenient to just load a bitmap from file and uh, from a file and put it on your window. You know, yeah, no memory DC, right. none of that stuff. I mean, they they didn't even have a call to to load a bitmap from a file and right. you know in Windows. So so I yeah I Windows forms. Um, I'll tell you when I was when I was back at PC Magazine, I was going into PC Magazine a lot, and, and um, at that time, like in the early '90s, PC Magazine was still doing a lot of technical stuff. So we get visited by by Microsoft people who the language people, and so we got visited by the the several guys who were out promoting MFC, Microsoft right. Foundation classes. This would have been what year? I don't know. Um, uh, 95, 96, 95? No, it was much earlier than that. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah, 311. Yeah. Sure. Um, anyway, so they started this presentation 311. about what MFC was. And the guy says, I come to you as a recovering upaholic. Really? When we first started doing a object-oriented interface to Windows, we, we did it the way we thought it should be done. And we, we constructed this interface that was purely, totally object-oriented and looked nothing like the Windows API. And unfortunately, the DLL was two megabytes in size, so we threw it away and did MFC instead. Hmm. And when I first started looking at MFC, I hated it. Yeah. This was all they did. I mean, it was, you know, later on, I mean, they, they, they admitted it. It was, it was, a, it was a, a light wrapper on the API. Right. You know? Object-oriented. Every handle became an object, which yeah. to me was so lame-brained. Um, it sounds like Java, almost, <laughs> you know? I, Java, I think, has done a lot better than MFC. I, don't, I, just, I just never could, I never could, could get into MFC. Yeah. And um, hmm. so I got a call from Jeff Proceis, and he said, Jeff, Jeff said, I, I'm thinking about doing a book about MFC. I, he said, I don't want to step on your toes. I said, you do it. I don't want to do it. <laughs> um, so I never wrote one word about MFC for publication. I mean, I did some MFC huh. programming, but I just hated it so much. Um, so when, when WinForms came around, you know, I felt I felt as if this was what I should I you know should have been released ten years ago. You know, I thought I thought yeah. it was, I thought WinForms was finally done right, or you know, as right as <laughs> a corporation yeah. like Microsoft could do it. You know, I was actually just going to ask you, um, Charles. You know, uh, uh, back I'm I'm told because I've pretty much been a managed programmer for the most part my entire life, except for a few dips into into other areas, but. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm told that obviously your Windows book was the Windows book, and now um, there's probably like a bit more competition in the space. Do you do you keep up on the other books that are written about Windows forms, or do you just kind of write <laughs> yours and and I and probably that sort should, of that? shouldn't I? I should probably know what all these books are. <laughs> um, you know, I, I I I know that I know that Chris Sell's book is is uh, doing very well, and um, it's a good book. Okay, and and mine is tanking. Um, so I, I, uh-huh. I don't know. Wow. Um, well, you know, it, you may be right about the publisher thing. Cause Charles, I didn't even know that you wrote a book on Windows forms program. Yeah. 
You know, one of the problems was, I, I guess, the title. Um, we Back when, when Windows Form, before .NET was released, it was called WinForms, which right. was really snappy. Yeah. Um, so the, book, the title of the book was going to be Programming WinForms. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I don't know. Somebody made a decision that it should be called Windows Forms. So then the title of the book became Programming Windows Forms. And it just didn't sound right. It, doesn't, it didn't sound like... Huh, right. It sounded like Programming Windows Forms. Right. Instead of Programming <laughs> Windows Forms. Right. And so we, we, had, we had this agonizing thing, and we finally called it Programming Windows with C Sharp, um, which... I don't know what else could it be but Windows Forms, but <laughs> I guess it confuses a lot of people. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It's a WinForms book, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it has a lot of graphics in it. <laughs> right. And I converted the whole book to, to VB.net as well. So. Cool. Cool. Which was an interesting experience. Well, well I was going to ask you, Charles. Um, after reading code and being familiar, obviously, with your Windows background and everything. Um, is, is, do you see yourself, is this where you want to be? Do you want to keep writing, um, books about like the, uh, the UI toolkits and stuff like that? Or would you rather be doing things kind of like code and, and, and sort of like, uh, I haven't read thinking in the key of C sharp, although I'm getting interested about it now. Yeah, um, I, I, what would you rather be doing? Like what? Um, yeah, I, I would like to be writing books that, um, uh, you know, are, are, <laughs> as I like to think of it. Uh, put on display on the first floor of Barnes and Noble, in <laughs> yeah. the basement. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes, I would like to do that. Um, yeah, yeah. Whether whether I can actually make money doing that, I don't know. Uh, whether I can uh -huh. actually make money doing .NET books, I don't know. So, hmm. one of the thing. Yeah, go ahead, Charles. I'm sorry. But what I, what I am what I am very much looking forward to, which is I, what I think is going to be a lot of fun, is doing an 800 page book on Avalon. So, and that's, that's, that's scheduled. I mean, that should, that should be great. So you it, are doing an fun. Avalon book then. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm under contract for that. So Charles, um, the, th one of the things that I really like about getting back to the GDI plus stuff about the graphics, the way that they've wrapped it all and made it work with the garbage collector and everything. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. That's nice. Yeah. Is, you know, the, the stuff that you had to do and the handles that you had to keep track of, you know, being object oriented, now they can put they can have a graphics object instead of a device context, and it's all there. Um, uh, you're still sort of programming at that Windows low level, but but you have the it's like at the perfect you're programming at the perfect level, like the right level. Yeah. it seems to me. Yeah, it's not so low that you're constantly worrying about this handle and that handle. You know, and did I realize? And did I did you know? Did I deallocate before I released my DC. Yeah, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't quite sure how I felt about garbage collection. Um, but after a while, I, I came to love it a great deal. You also talked about uh, VB. You converted a book to VBNet. Right. Now, you're obviously come from a C you know, background. What, what, are your, what are your opinions of it, of the oh. language? There's, I, I mean, at, at this point with .NET, there's there's really uh, no substantial difference in the language you use. It's a it's a matter of, of personal preference. Yeah. Um. So there was um. There were a few things 
Well, there was one thing that I, I, I had to work around. Does, does um, VB has, has bit shifting, right? Or not? Um, there was something like that that yeah. I needed to mess with that didn't quite convert right. But other than that, it went very smoothly. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure actually to tell you the truth. I know that it's there in Widby. I'm not sure if it's there in mm. uh, yeah. Yeah. I've written sort of my own tools to do that, uh, mm-hmm. my own little routines, anding and oring. <laughs> um so what what kind of projects are you working on now? I know that you're writing a book, you know, this book on Avalon or you're or you're working on it or it's in the works, but um what other kinds of projects uh are you working on? Um, I have been um, spending a lot of my free time, which was, um, which I have more free time than I would have normally, but I mean, I really should be writing the Avalon book now, but uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, Avalon has, has, I mean, the Longhorn has, has slipped so far, it'd be crazy for me to start the book now. Um, so I've been working on a, a personal project that... Um, involves um, the prehistory of the computer. I don't really want to get into specifics, um, but it's been, it's, it's, a, it's a history thing, and it's, a, uh, okay. it's, it's 19th century, it's England, cool. um, and it's been very enjoyable. I have learned a, a great deal about, um, about uh, 19th century British theology of all things it, it plays wow. a, it plays a role in this huh. particular piece of history and um, and the effect of Darwin on the psyches of, of the British scientists and stuff like that um, wow, so whether, cool. I, whether <laughs> I'm going to be able to pull this thing off uh, I don't know it's been it's been one of the hardest things I've, I've done and uh, but it's been it's been enjoyable that sounds cool. Now, um, do you so, so can I ask a question along those lines? Or sure, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, as as long as we're kind of talking a little bit about um, personal pursuits here, Charles. Obviously, a lot of people know you through your books and through your writing and and that sort of thing. But I'm I, for example, maybe don't know that much about you specifically. And I have to say, I'm kind of curious here. If you could just do something that didn't involve computers or tech. Or or anything like that for a day or a week or a month. Like, what would you do? Would you just go like stick your toes in the sand at the beach, or or like what's your thing? What's your non tech thing? Do you have a non tech thing? I have. I I, I do a lot of reading, um, and mm-hmm. um, when I am, I, I live in New York City. Um, I happen to be out of New York City mm-hmm. for this summer, but I live in New York City, and um, every Wednesday I go up to the library, and uh, mostly doing some research of this crazy book I'm working on. Um, but, well, they, they do have, the whole card catalog is, is on the internet. So, I mean, it's not entirely techless. But it's, I mean, I'm looking at actual books. <laughs> so, so you, um, you, you, you go be, and you hang out at the, at the New York Public Library every Wednesday? Yeah. <laughs> That's actually kind of cool. I mean, no, I, I, cool. You, you gave away a lot of information there online and everything, and and it makes me think back to when I was walking through New York and I went right past right past the library, and I wish I had known this at the time because I would have gone in <laughs> and looked for you, and it probably would have really irritated you. But then I could have made you sign my code book. 
But anyway, so I'm sorry to interrupt. So you go out to the library and you're doing your research and uh, – so, Yeah, I, huh, I, I would probably um, be very happy doing that kind of thing you know, uh, 30 years ago, you know, before there were any computers actually in the library. Um, I used to go to, I, I grew up in Jersey, and um, I used to come into the city and go to the library. And at that time, there were, you know, this, this whole big room full of card catalogs. Um, and they switched that over to computers, I guess, starting in the 70s. Uh, but they took the entire card catalog and, um, reproduced it in big books. There's like a, a there's like a thousand volumes of these big black books and there's like ten re, ten cards on each page. And it's like a, it's like a, the card catalog was like ten million cards. So now now if you want huh, to wow. to look at the old card catalog, you pull these books down from the shelf and, and look through them. But <laughs> most of the card catalogs are on the on the uh, internet of course. Um Charles, Richard Hale Shaw is out there listening. And, Richard, uh, yeah. uh, old buddy. Yep. And uh, by the way, for those people who don't know, Richard and I are sort of teaming up uh, in the training business. He oh, has, cool. uh, He's doing C-sharp training, and uh, I do VBNet and no C-sharp. So we're sort of uh, reselling each other's classes. And also, he's going to do C-sharp classes here at the Franklin's Net Training uh, center in New London, and I'm going to do VBNet classes in Boston, where he recently moved to. And uh, he asked me to ask you about the keyboard virus that you installed on a PC magazine editor's <laughs> computer. I have no idea what that means. Yeah, yeah, I'm afraid that wasn't me. Um, <laughs> okay. I, I collaborated in the planning of it. Um, uh, some, some of the, um, I don't know, people, people who are... Have, haven't been in this industry for a long time, probably don't realize that PC Magazine used to have like technical articles, programming articles, <laughs> you know. That's and true. so I, I wrote one of them. <laughs> we had, uh, so there was a bunch of contributing editors, um, like ProSize and, and Doug Bowling and a, a couple others. And um, we were at some conference and, and we plotted um, a, a program that we would install on one of the executive editor's machines. Um, and I didn't actually write it. I didn't install it there. But what this was was uh, a, it trapped the keyboard, and um, it, would, it wouldn't kick in until typing speed had reached a certain point, and then it would start substituting letters, characters from the keyboard. To, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and... Um, so, so the executive editor who's, who was victim to this was uh, had it on his machine for several days, and he'd be there in his office late at night. He'd be, he'd be cursing, and and because you know, <laughs> he he knew something was wrong, you know, but he'd, he'd start typing away, and then all all these mistakes would occur, and he'd slow down, and they'd stop, you know, and. Uh, <laughs> Finally, somebody had to go in and tell him, and he just said, oh, thank God. I thought I was losing my mind. That's great. And with that, Charles, we're going to uh, pause for a uh, an intermission. Going to play a little music and pay some bills and uh, hang out, give everybody a chance to get a beer or do whatever it is they need to do. And we'll be back in a few minutes. In the meantime, check out this original Rory Blythe tune entitled Bitches, for whatever reason. You'll have to ask Rory about that. Long story. Yeah. 
It's a great song. Rory Blythe, original music. And uh, this is the Franklin Brothers, New London Blues.
And unfortunately, I'm going to have to talk over this song because I want to tell you about our friends up at Data Dynamics. www.datadynamics.com. They got lots of great developer tools that we like, and especially uh, ActiveReports.net. If you're fussing around with anything but ActiveReports.net for reports, you're wasting your time. No com objects, 100% managed code, works. Just embed the reports right in your application. Works with PDF, works with HTML. All my friends love it. I swear by it. Go check it out, www.datadynamics.com. I also want to announce that, uh, just like I said before we went to break, that uh, Richard Hale Shaw and Franklin's Net, Richard Hale Shaw Group, uh, we're joining forces. And uh, he's Mr. C Sharp and C++, but Mr. C Sharp in the .NET world. And I'm Mr. VBNet, as you know. And, uh, you know, he dipped his peanut butter in my chocolate. I dipped my chocolate in his peanut butter. And we uh, are reselling each other's classes. So he's going to be teaching an extended version of his C-sharp.net boot camp. The extended edition is like really long days. Uh, on October, the week of October 18th here in New London, Connecticut. And uh, he also teaches his classes up in Boston area. And uh, this is the extended edition. It's five very long, very intense days with comprehensive material, extensive homework, detailed projects for learning the .NET framework from every perspective. Uh, the extended edition is a complete immersion into .NET development and includes nearly 600 pages of lab exercises that cover more in one week than a Microsoft CERT course could offer in four. The extended edition is more expensive than the classic version, but you get more than your money's worth. And if you survive the 11 to 12 hour days, you'll emerge complete, completely prepared to address any facet of .NET development. It's personally taught by Richard Hale Shaw. Don't have anything up on our website yet, but we're working on it over the weekend. But go to www.richardhaleshawgroup.com and uh, look at the .NET boot camps for C Sharp and uh, more of that to follow. Stick around. Check out this guitar solo. This is Turn On The Light from Strange Communication. We'll be back right after this song.
Thanks for hanging out, and uh, hope you appreciate the music. Some uh, uh, original Rory Blythe, followed by some original Franklin Brothers there. And uh, what can I say? We're with talking with uh, the great Charles Petzold about, oh, just about everything, about his book Code, which is the last uh, book that he wrote that I read, and uh, some of his new books and new things he's working on. And uh, we just got talking about some stories from the bad old days. And you know there must be a million of them, <laughs> <laughs> Charles. You must have some 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 really good stories, I imagine. Yeah, I've been I've been searching my mind for them. They must be there somewhere. Um, hmm. I'll have to work on that. <laughs> okay. So, do you think anybody should be programming in C plus plus in the year two thousand four? Uh, sure. Who? <laughs> For what? 
Um, yeah, I, 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 you probably have a better idea than I do of, of uh, how how .NET is doing in terms of, of uh, user yeah. acceptance and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, uh, I, I certainly do. I mean, I hear nothing but great, great feedback from the people who are using it, of course. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I live in a VBNet world, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, not coming from a C++ background and not ever having to write a device driver ever. Never wrote a device. I did write some Terminate and Stay Resident TSRs back in oh, the DOS boy. days yeah. with multiple interrupt handlers, but... Uh. Um, yeah, that stuff was nuts. <laughs> you know this this thing. Same... I feel smart when you say that. I mean, if Charles Petzold thinks what I was doing back then was nuts, that's. Uh... <laughs> well, I was doing that stuff too. It was the, insane. The, the same executive editor at PC Magazine who we we installed the little the little keyboard handler, um, the keyboard messer upper <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. He used to run so many TSRs. Uh, his he had like this batch file that was like 25 lines and running all these TSRs, and consequently his machine would he would crash DOS several times a day, you know, um, it would just freeze up on him. So he wanted me to write a TSR called unfreeze. So whenever his pro whenever his whenever DOS crashed and froze up, he'd be able to press a key to unfreeze DOS. Uh, <laughs> So he had too many TSRs, and he wanted you to write the TSR that would rescue him from all the other TSRs. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It, it was, and see, but he was. Oh, I shouldn't talk too much about him. But um, <laughs> well, we never said his name, did to, we? To me, no, we did not. To me, to me, that TSR crisis, and it, re- it did reach crisis points. I think with TSRs starting to, you know, grab screens from each other and. Um, you know, certain TSRs had to be loaded in the right order with other ones and stuff like that. It seemed it that I think is what made Windows a total necessity. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. It people people didn't know it, but they were ready for for multitasking. You know, they right. were ready to have all these programs there. And um, I mean, it was, and, but it was the people, the power users who were using all these TSRs who were most resistant to Windows at the beginning, right. you know? Were you a God, double... Yeah, I totally didn't want to switch to Windows. Oh, yeah. God, I didn't want to switch. I was dragged kicking and screaming into the Windows 95 world, and I, the only reason I had Windows 3 was for solitaire. I wasn't going to do anything <laughs> else with it, you know? Were you a double DOS guy? A double DOS? No, no. no. Um, I, I, at, at some point, I just hated all that stuff. Um, I, I, I stopped running TSRs entirely at one point uh, because I, I, I was just tired of, of, uh, of what they did. Um, yeah. And so I, I, I was ready for Windows. I was very ready for it. Um, not that it was, you know, practical to use <laughs> in right, those right. days. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I knew it would come around eventually, I guess. Uh well, the rest of us were hoping that DeskView was going to be the future. DeskView, yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember being at a, at a user group of, uh, you know, Windows NT and the 16-bit Windows people who had, you know, spent hours tweaking DeskView and they had it working perfectly, you know, and it was doing exactly what they wanted it to do. Mm. They were saying, why should we move to this bigger, slower, 
operating system when, you know, DeskView works just fine. Yeah. And unfortunately, you can't, unless you have vision, you can't answer that question. Well, the answer is very simple. Yeah. The answer is graphics. Yeah. Well, okay. Solitaire. Yeah. <laughs> but you know they but they didn't but you know this guy mm. would always come back, you know, I don't care about graphics. I don't care about that. I don't care about oh, yeah. that. Yeah, My stuff works, why should I upgrade? Yeah. But you know, but I don't I don't sense that kind of uh attitude now with Longhorn. Like I think people know what the potential of mm-hmm. operating systems are now mm-hmm. and they don't see it, you know, quite there with XP. In fact, they don't see it there at all with XP. Yeah. And uh here comes, you know, the promise of this beautiful operating system and i think people are really salivating for it yeah don't, well, it, you, don't it was, you it was tough it was tough to see it way back when right because with dos we were still dealing with manageable hard drives and manageable yeah. uh, uh you know sizes of data so you weren't going to get arthritis from cd backslashing your way through your uh directory hierarchy but now i mean if people oh, were man. exposed to file structures like now in in a dos world they would go absolutely crazy they would go yeah. completely nuts so you're right. It's a lack. It is a lack of vision. You know, you do need to have that vision and be able to see where things are going. And, and that and, you know, clicking uh, is a hell of a lot easier than typing. Yeah, IBM didn't have that much of that vision either. They had uh, their their desktop utility was Top View, and it was all character, character mode. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Okay. There. You know. There. There are some OS things too, that. Well, yeah. there are some things that that you know the keyboard works a lot better for data entry obviously yeah, you know, if anything yeah. repetitive that you won't you won't get a data entry person to use the mouse at all they want keyboard shortcuts for everything well it was it was real interesting that um and i'm not sure if this is entirely the case now but at least with the first few ver- versions of windows it was very much the case that you could do everything with the keyboard you know they were right. they were very conscientious about about Having keyboard shortcuts for everything uh, because they they couldn't be guaranteed that there'll be a mouse on the machine. You know, it wasn't like they couldn't be guaranteed of the hardware. You know, it was wasn't like a Mac where where you know everything is there. You know, and it's all the same. Yeah. Did you ever run a Mac? No, no, I just never got. I was I was really you know an Intel person from the very beginning. You know, and right. I I had. Um, when I started, you know, wiring up microprocessors, it was the Intel 8080 and uh, the Zilog Z80, which, which was 8080 compatible, and then CPM, and then DOS. So I never really got into all that that Motorola, you know, culture. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was, it was. So. You know what? Tell tell me what it was like back in the early days. I mean, you were there at Windows 1.0. You were obviously hanging around these people. How, you know what? What was the atmosphere like for you as a writer? I mean, was there was anybody thinking about writing about this stuff, or it not, was not really? We, um, I first started seeing Windows about oh, I guess about a year before it was released. It was it was released at Fall Comdex in 1985, version 1.0, and um, I, I was spending a lot of time at PC Magazine. Um, and doing doing writing and reviewing of hardware and stuff like that, and periodically Steve Ballmer would like come by the magazine with the latest beta version of of <laughs> Windows, huh. you know. And um, there was like only one guy in the office who had a EGA, right? So we'd go and run <laughs> it on his machine, you know, because that was the Mr. only way to get color, yeah. right? Um, 
and you know we'd play with it until it crashed too much we'd get bored you know and and uh so i mean if people who remember that era i mean windows was announced like several years before and it just took so long for them to get it working right um and i had i had like no idea how you write programs for this thing so you know i i asked um one of the editors how do you code for this and he opened up his drawer and he pulled out a big pile of paper and five diskettes <laughs> and said, take this home. Uh, and it was the, the beta oh SDK um, on diskettes, you know? Yeah. And loose. So um, I bought, I, I barely knew C at the time. Um, and I went home and installed this whole thing. And uh, six months later, I could write my first Windows program. But I mean, six, six months. months? Wow. The <laughs> <laughs> SDK was just, I mean, there was a tutorial. They, they had, with the Windows 1.0 SDK, they had five programs in the tutorial. And um, the first program was basically Hello World. Yeah. But it had a menu, it had an about box, it had, and it was, it was <laughs> like pages, pages and pages long, the code. And, after I kind of figured out how it worked, um, I said, does a program really need a dialog box? And I took that code out and the program still worked. Hmm. You know, does the program <laughs> need the menu? I took that code out and the program still worked. <laughs> so I got it down to, you know, two pages. <laughs> and that became like the first program. I, I thought, you know, this, this stuff could be taught a lot better. Yeah. Richard Hale Shaw wants you to tell the story of how you uh, first started working for PC Magazine. First started working for PC Magazine. Um, right. I'm not even sure I know this story. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I, I, let's see, in 1984, January of 84, I bought an IBM PC, which was $5,000. Mm-hmm. That's what they cost. And I wiped out two credit cards buying that. And I said, I better generate some income off of this. And I wrote an article about the prompt command, which was new in MS-DOS, like 2.0 or something. Mm -hmm. And I sent it to PC Magazine, and they sent me $800. (laughs) And um, a few months later, during the summer, they called me, and they were, they like, because PC Magazine was right in the city. They They were in New York City. Was that Bill McCrown? Yeah. Yeah. Um, he wasn't editor right then, but um, they were calling all the freelance writers in the New York City area because they wanted to review every print, every computer printer that existed. Okay. And so they needed people to come into the offices to review print- printers. So, like, my name happened to be on the list. Well, you you see, you've seen, you know, you're obviously very modest because Richard Hale Shaw is saying. Uh, yeah, he wrote a piece. They loved it. They asked him for more. You know what? You know what? That piece that I wrote that they paid me $800 for, it it didn't even run in PC Magazine. It ran in some other Ziff publication. They well, didn't even tell me. I think what he's saying is that they saw your writing and they really loved it. So. No, well, no. After, after, I was, after I was doing a few printer reviews, I went into uh, one of the guy's offices and I started showing him some, little, some programs I had written you know, yeah. some assembly language programs. 
And he said, you got to write for the back of the book. So Cool. But, I mean, yeah, everybody has strange stories like that of how they get into this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Richard Norman from Fresno, California says, in looking through the history of Windows, what do you see was Microsoft, or what do you think Microsoft's biggest mistake with Windows might have been? Wow. Huh. <laughs> biggest mistake. Um, wasting a lot of time with 16-bit technology. Hmm. At the beginning, so because of backward compatibility, you think? Yeah, they. I mean, they wanted it. I, this was one of the things that IBM wanted, I guess, is is for the. Uh, well, they they wanted it to run on existing machines, a lot right. of existing machines. Um, they they accomplished that, though. I mean, you yeah. know, not, it's true. I mean, for guys like you know who want the 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 new stuff, progress. You know, they progress slowly because. Let's face it. They wanted. They didn't want their old, uh, their existing customers to go away. They had yeah. to keep them happy. I was, you know, I I I know that um, Microsoft takes a lot of flack for Windows. Yeah. And all, and and some of it's deserved. And but the people who try to compare Windows with 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 the Mac just right. don't understand how what a challenge it is. To write an operating system like Windows that you that uses a lot of graphical devices and make it run on oh, so many different pieces of hardware. I, I, you know? I totally agree. The fact that you know the whole printer abstraction, video abstraction—it's oh, amazing man. that stuff works yeah. at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for for years there were only two printers that you could really use with the Mac, right? Yeah, that's right. And I remember the the old days before all that stuff when every program had its own printer configuration stuff. Oh man, yeah. And that was part of the job of writing a program. You didn't have a program that, you know, a word processor for example, if you didn't have built-in support for all these printers that you yep. had to do yourself. Mhm. So just, you know, we take a lot for granted, you know, after the fact, after all that work has been done. It's true. No, I totally agree with you. So Richard's here, and he's. I wish we could get him on the phone, but we only have one line here. But he's uh, just, you know, needling us with uh, with things to ta- ask you about. He says, <laughs> <laughs> "He says now ask about how Microsoft first opened an office in New York City." And I have no idea what these stories are, so you know, he may be totally setting you up. I don't know. I I, I wonder <laughs> if he's talking about. I wonder if he's talking about Microsoft Systems Journal, because. Um, MSJ. He says the story about John Lazarus, long-time oh, yeah. right-handed yeah, bomber. Yeah, um, this is how, actually how I got I got writing for a Microsoft Systems Journal, um, because the the magazine was founded by Jonathan Lazarus, who was a vice president at Ziff Davis, um, and so he worked in the the same building as PC Magazine mm-hmm. at at One Park. Uh, Park Avenue, one Park Avenue South, two Park Avenue South, one of the, <laughs> whatever that address is. Yeah. So I, I knew him from um, the magazine, I mean, the, and the, the publisher. So he had a consulting firm um, called H. Rourke Enterprises, huh. named after Howard Rourke, who was the main character of Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead. Okay. Shows you where his politics are. Right. And um, so MSJ was started by his consulting firm. Okay. Um, and it was originally going to be a Windows programming magazine. Hmm. And then they chickened out <laughs> and made it a, a 
DOS and Windows programming magazine. Um, but he knew, John Lazarus knew that I was, I was hacking around with Windows and stuff. Um, not only writing Windows programs, but doing weird things with Windows. Um, yeah. You like, I'll tell you one thing. Um, you remember Lotus 1-2-3? Yeah. Um, Lotus 1-2-3 had very simple, a very simple display driver. It was a piece of assembly language code that um, I wrote directly to the display. But it was, it was fairly simple. Mm -hmm. It was a very, and, and it was a separate file. Um, now, if you were going to run a DOS program under Windows, the DOS program had to write, had to use uh, the, either the BIOS or DOS to write to the screen. Yeah. And very few programs did because it was so slow. So what I did was rewrite, wrote the, uh, the, the display driver for Lotus 1.2.3 so it used a BIOS interrupt to write to the screen instead of writing directly to hardware. Right, which is a little slower to go through it, the BIOS. <laughs> and then I ran it in a window in Windows. In a, oh. in a DOS window. Oh, right. So, and that really slowed it down. Yeah. But. But it worked. Not, yeah. <laughs> and then I heard, I heard that about a month later, we showed this to Steve Ballmer, who got a chuckle out of it, because <laughs> you'd never seen, you'd never seen Lotus 1-2-3 run so slowly. Yeah. You know, right. um, it was, it was absurd. Right. It was unusable. Yeah. But I heard like a month later. Steve Ballmer is addressing some industry group, and he says, "Oh yes, we have technology to run Lotus One Two Three in a window." Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> well, we'd like to see that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, anyway, that's that's uh. how that's how I started writing for MSJ. Yeah. And um, as far and and the, I, I wrote an I wrote a Windows programming article for MSJ, and I still believe. Nobody has disproven it that this was the first Windows programming magazine article ever. Yeah, um, I don't doubt it. I don't yeah. know where. I mean, I, I was reading, you know, all the programming magazines at the time, so I would have known. Right. So, well, David, uh, that's Fa my that's my one claim to fame. Da well, one. <laughs> yeah, you are so modest. Can you believe this? <laughs> I can't believe this. This guy's brilliant. You got to read his stuff. And like all good writers, he's very modest and self-critical. So uh, uh, David Foster wants to know, what did Microsoft do most right with Windows? Like, what did they nail? You know, it's, it's weird. I really never thought of this because I, I never thought of Windows as being right or wrong. Um, it was... It just is, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it was... It was totally necessary. Zen of Windows. Yeah. It was totally necessary for IBM compatibles to have a graphical yeah. user interface. Absolutely. Um, Microsoft was one of the few companies who were able to pull it off. And one, I'll tell you one of the things they did right. Very early on, they started talking to developers. Yeah. Um, and and getting developers to write third-party, uh, you know, write applications for Windows. Um, and they had these seminars in mm. different cities. I went to one in, in like, uh, 1986, I guess. Um, and it was it was great. I mean, it was a whole week or so, and and you know, it changed my life. <laughs> yeah, they were all they were all always about developers, developers, yeah. developers, developers. And I guess they they must have learned that from Apple. 
Yeah. Um, but it was something that that IBM didn't have a clue about doing. Yeah. You know. I know um, that for a fact. I tried to use their speech recognition SDK, uh, and I downloaded. I ordered it. You had to order it, and I got this incredibly incomprehensible mess of stuff. Yeah. It was just you know. I don't know. Uh, you know, was, people also don't remember this, but, but in the very early days of Windows, um, it, people would have, you, you would get a free copy of Windows when you bought a, a, a display board, you know? And people had, like, huh. all these copies of Windows that they'd gotten for free. Um, it took a while for them to, you know, to actually run them. But you didn't have to install it. You could, like, run Windows off a floppy disk, you know? and just Yeah. Or you know, yeah, or you can install it on the hard drive and and you you boot up into DOS and then type Win on the command line and yeah. go into Windows. Mark Mark Dunn, who is the uh, previous co-host of .NET Rocks and also uh, has a degree in math and uh, is very uh, very smart, he has a question. He says .NET allows new languages to be added fairly easy. Do you foresee that the friction between VB and C Sharp could end one day with a unified language? A unified language that combined VB and C sharp, kind of like a a a a, a or un- just something else, mutant language, or, or even something completely different that yeah. that would embrace both. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. I think he's, some, I think he's smoking crack personally. Yeah, there are some real <laughs> incompatibilities there, aren't there? Just the, um, you know, it, it it's it's less about the language and more about the programmer. Yeah. The, where the incompatibilities are. Yeah. You know? I think. Um, there's, there's some there's some things, there's the some things about, about the C family languages that I just I I I, I would miss incredibly like yeah. the compound assignment statements you know plus equals times equals I mm. love those we have those in VBNet now you really do yeah wow yep hey this sounds like the show we did a couple of weeks ago Roy <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no it's true yeah there's a there's that stuff we even have unsigned data types now and ah, uh, okay things that we never had yeah you guys always i didn't did. really miss unsigned data types though when i i was i was messing around those with are the kind days. of things that you only miss when you need them yeah that's true and you don't need them very often no yeah yep well uh what do you think about mono mono yeah what is that all right perfect answer what do you think of that huh <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Next question. <laughs> that is a uh it's a open source uh port of the .NET framework oh, really? and compilers and okay. other things for for Unix, Mac stuff. Does it work? I don't know. I I downloaded it and I couldn't understand it. It was worse than the IBM well, we, uh yeah. thing that Do I got years ago. You have something someplace to run it on? Yeah, you can. There is a Windows. There is a Windows version. Okay. Yeah, I downloaded the Macintosh OS 10 version, and uh, I got it up and running. As long as you're familiar with the command line tools for the .NET SDK, um, it's mm-hmm. not too difficult to get going with the Mono version, provided you know where yeah. all the files are and how they did things. Yeah. So it it does work. It's not as fast. Um, and there's some issues, and there's some things that are missing, and there's some APIs that they can't implement because of intellectual property issues. But it does work. Hmm. So it's in there. Yeah. Hmm. It it runs .NET .NET Xes, right? You don't have to recompile or anything, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. You ah, don't have to recompile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is yeah. what was supposed to happen. Well, they set it up right. so that it could, but it yeah. was never supposed to. You know, that's yeah, I, yeah. 
it was always lip service in my mind and mm-hmm. uh until somebody actually did the implementation and you know i've heard microsoft's uh official response a couple of years ago was you know they if the if the you know when the mono guys call and they ask to talk to the engineers they're glad to to answer questions mm-hmm. but they're not going out of their way to to help you know yeah so so and they and they have obviously published the CLI which is an open source well an open right, source right. is an open specification for how it works so and that's what mono was built from yeah so we're we're about to uh, go into our Richard the Toy Boy segment in which Richard Campbell our friend from Vancouver finds uh, an interesting toy out on the web that geeks have to have every week and we usually give one away and he usually finds a good toy and a not so good toy so he's going to talk about that but before we bring Richard on is there any uh, last minute uh, plugs for your books or or, or words of wisdom or pearls uh, um, anything you want to say well yeah I just I just would just like people to know that I, I have written three .net books, and they're, they're, uh, two of them are on, on WinForms, and the, the third is a uh, uh, book for beginning programmers on C-sharp. Right. And, um, yeah, if you're looking around for .net books, I'm sure that mine. You know, I'm sure that <laughs> I didn't hear about it because of the publisher. Uh, yeah, you know, I, mean, uh, I don't know. What's with the publisher? Well, I don't so, know, but, uh, but it certainly sounds like they're going to be great books, or they are. And I'd like yeah. to I'd like to check them out myself. Yeah, I mean, if if you try to find the programming windows with C sharp, I mean, certain certain major online bookstores uh, may indicate that it's out of print. Um, <laughs> this is another little mm. problem we're having. The um, uh, apparently the the publisher has like this automated system that when certain things happen to a book sales, it kicks in something and uh, I don't know, it pulls the plug or something like that, mm. <laughs> but it's, um, they, they should fix that. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, <laughs> mm. definitely. Um, what about the, where do you see the future, uh, going after, after, or maybe in Longhorn or maybe beyond? Uh, do you, are you a fan of Ray Kurzweil? Have you read his book? No, I haven't read his book. Uh, what is it? The Age of Spiritual Machines, yeah. the book that I'm reading. It's pretty interesting stuff. But uh, I don't know. It seems like that you're going back in the past, whereas, you know, yeah, yeah. Kurzweil's going yeah. into the future. And yeah, and that's I, good. I, you know, that's good because <laughs> I I tell you, I think everyone should go out and buy, all the listeners should go out and buy code to fill in the gaps where your knowledge is lacking. And uh, that's really, really important. We're losing that, you know. Yeah. Or just really to are. enjoy the satisfying feeling of reading something and getting it, right? Yeah. Something you've kind of wondered about for a long, long time right. and just finally finding that thing that talks to you in the right way. That's why I say it's like the Carl Sagan, you know, for the for Absolutely. the computer scientists. Well, just because it's so effective and it, and it doesn't, it brings you along just the right pace. It doesn't ever go over your head. It just keeps, it's it's interesting. It just keeps you going. Yeah, I would, yeah. I would highly, highly recommend that. And I've been promoting that book for yep. years. I always say to people, have you ever read Code? Whenever they mention uh, Charles Petzold, so yeah, it is good stuff. Certainly awesome. Well, uh, Charles, stick around, uh, and we're going to come back to you, and you can participate in this little foray too. And uh, now it's time to announce Richard Campbell, Richard the Toy Boy, for his toy segment. 
And Richard, Richard Campbell, my friend, what do you got hey, for us this week? Uh, Carl, it's another good week in Toyland. What can I tell you? <laughs> Excellent. Now, I'm going to do something a little different this week, and uh, we're going to focus. We're, we can't give away the new toy because the new toy is just too new. Uh, I know you are aware of it, but uh, the others may not be aware out there. I'm, I've got a real serious digital camera bug, and I've been watching closely as to what's going on lately. And... Uh, been holding off buying a digital SLR because A, they're pricey, and B, they're all one, two, three years old. And I figured something new was coming, and the new thing has finally arrived. So uh, I'll send you over to Shrinkster, and uh, shrinkster.com slash CX. CX. Now, and that is a Canon the, EOS 20D. D digital. Wow. Now, here's... It's a pretty little camera. Canon is the 800-pound gorilla of the digital camera world, yeah. especially when it comes to digital SLRs. And their original what is, what EOS is a One SLR. Well, SLR stands for single lens reflex, and the whole okay. big deal with SLR is that when you look through the viewfinder, you're actually looking through the lens, and mm. the lens reflex trick comes from that little clicking noise you hear when you press the camera mm-hmm. is actually the mirror jumping out of the way, oh. so that the camera can take its picture. Aha. Uh-huh. That's the magic of an SLR, if you've uh, known that particular trick. I didn't know that. Well, there you go. You learn something new And obviously, every day. this toy isn't something we can give it away. It's a we pretty cannot give this one toy. away. Yes. You're probably talking 1500 US for this camera. Why is this When it's so released, cool? and it's not released yet. There's two things that are very, very cool about this. One is that it is brand new. It's got all the latest toys in it, so it's a good feature set. It is an 8-megapixel camera, which is going to become the standard for most cameras. But more importantly than that, Canon makes their own sensor. It's a CMOS sensor instead of a CCD sensor. And when you get into the real technical aspects of it, there's pluses and minuses in both. But the bottom line is the CMOS sensor, you can get a better sensor for less money. And Canon is the only one making this particular sensor. So it's quite powerful. And it's their second generation. Their first one on the EOS 10 and on the EOS 300 was a 6-megapixel and was a little earlier and had a few more problems. This new one uh, looks to be probably one of the best solutions for digital cameras we've seen anywhere. So I've been totally stoked waiting for this camera to come out. Cool. And actually, it leaked a, about a week ago. Mm. Canon was very unhappy about that. But it just now they're officially announcing it, so I figured I'd play ball with them and uh, and show this thing now that it had actually been officially come out. And this is probably the camera for me. This is what I want for Christmas. Wow. And uh I recommend anybody looking at digital SLR. You know, Canon's done a great job of building a bridge from sort of your prosumer type cameras, the fixed lens, eight megapixel, six megapixels cameras. Uh, their Rebel, which is the 300D, is uh, just slightly more than your average prosumer, runs about 800, 900 US. And mm. then you can go from there up to uh, the 10D and the 20D is now the latest version of this. Nice. So, you can get into this for under $2,000. It's not a small change, but you get a remarkable camera for their challenges. Well, Richard, if we can't give away one of these, then we must you must be planning to give away one of the not-so-cool toys. And what That's m- absolutely right. And in fact, I think be? we're going to need to get two of them. Okay. But let's go take a look at this toy because <laughs> it was inspired. I have been inspired for this toy. I saw this toy, and I immediately thought of Rory. No. So shrinkster.com slash C Y. <laughs> it's Humphrey the Humping oh, yeah. Hound. Yes, indeed. 
And I think it's even a Chihuahua, too. And it just seems so familiar to me when I saw it. I took a good look at that. Now, if you think out. this is funny, take a look at the video and make sure you have your sound card turned way up. Because apparently, this dog makes sound effects. Well, unless you're actually connected to the audio stream of the show, in which case we should mute the lines. Uh, <laughs> I'm I, not going to run the video. Oh, no. my. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm watching it right now, and I gotta say that's that's pretty lifelike. That's actually pretty lifelike. My dog tends to sweet talk the leg a little bit first, and maybe Sony's gonna come out with an intelligent leg humping dog that'll do that. But uh, this is pretty close for just the visceral leg humping action. This is pretty close. So this is why I'm saying we need two of these because Rory must have one of these. I oh, was very close insane. to simply ordering it and sending it to to him today, but I think. I think somebody ought to earn one of these as well. Well, my dog at hog it, you know? <laughs> well, this is what I'm thinking. Is you can finally get your dog off of you. Give him a playmate that fights back. <laughs> That's insane. A robotic humping, leg humping dog. Yeah. You know, so, you can get one from the SBCA, too. <laughs> so, you know, this reminds me, Roy. People want to know what's up with Google Weirdos these days, and you haven't been doing it. Are they just? Is it running dry? It the well has run almost completely dry. It's like the same old searches over and over and over again. Google Weirdos, I think, is going to be dead for several months. There's just hmm. no bringing it back for the time being because it's so hard to mine it for searches now. I've gone in there and, like any natural resource, I have mined it until there's nothing left and I've destroyed the fragile ecosystem of the area. <laughs> and now I'm rambling and making shit up as I go along, <laughs> but you kind of see what I'm getting at here. Well, we'll we'll uh, we'll have to fill the void somehow. I mean, don't worry about that. Uh, we'll we'll do that. But anyway, Richard, how can uh, an alert listener get their hands on one of these things? All right. Here's a challenge for you. As usual, I want you to search on the site. No, there's no point in searching on Humphrey. It's really no deeper than what you're looking at right there. <laughs> you got to go back to the Canon site. Okay. We were talking about what was exciting about the uh, Canon camera, the particular characteristics of the thing that they've uh, they built there, that CMOS sensor. What makes that sensor so compelling is its size. The size is very important because it matches certain standard sizes in the photographic industry. Size matters. What I want is the specific name used to identify the size of the CMOS sensor in the EOS 20D camera from Canon. So send us the name of the si sensor size when yourself a Humphrey. All right, and you're going to send that to www.franklins.net slash... No, I'm sorry. You're going to send that to .net rocks at franklins.net. It's an email address. And uh, the first accurate response is going to win. Actually, the second, right? We're going to give away two of these. So the first two right answers are going to get Humphrey the Humping Dog. What do you think of that, Charles? Cool. You ever think you'd live to see the day where you'd be on a show where... Sharing the building, the billing with you is Humphrey the Humping Dog. I didn't know about that camera, though. Um, I am very interested in that. I have a bunch of EOS lenses yeah. uh, from my from my 35 millimeter SLR days, and I've been I've been kind of waiting for a good Canon body to put those lenses on. So this looks cool. Awesome. And uh, Richard, you again, and me both, Charles. What is the what is the spec that you wanted, Richard? I'm I'm looking for the name of the size of the sensor in the Canon. The name of it, not the size. Yeah. There's a very specific name for that size of sensor. Okay. 
and uh, let's put the music back up as we wait for a winner. Okay, and we have a couple of winners here. Uh, the name is APS-C, and the first winner is uh, Syntask Error. And I'm sorry, Syntask, if I put you, you your poor name. bastard. And the second winner is uh, Damien McGivern from Belfast, Ireland. Congratulations to both of you. Yay! Bravo. Bravo. Bravo, yes. And that uh what can I say? You know, that that's pretty awesome, Richard. Good job. I can't wait to see what you come up with next week. Uh, well, it's always a challenge. It is, it certainly is. So from on behalf of myself and Rory Blythe and Richard Camel, Jeff Maciolik out there in the sound room and all the listeners in the chat room, thanks for tuning in to this special episode of Dot Rocks with Charles Petzold. Charles, thank you. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. It, it was an extreme pleasure for me. And uh, come back and do the show again, will you? Okay. All right. Good night, everybody. Yeah,